the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, with this COVID-19 pandemic lockdown, and I'm still in Multnomah County, so we are officially still locked down, it's hard to remember one day from the next. I have to think long and hard about, is it Tuesday? Is it Wednesday? Well, it's Tuesday, and it's the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm quite proud of myself that I got that right. In fact, tomorrow on the program, we are going to be joined with the Union Gospel Mission, their Summer of Safety Radiothon, so heads up on that. We'll tell you more about it at the end of today's program. Today, we have the opportunity to talk with Governor George Allen. He served as the 67th Governor of Virginia from 94 to 98. He also served in the U.S. Senate for Virginia in 2001 to 2007. Well, he served on the Heritage Foundation National Coronavirus Recovery Commission that just released its final report, making some 200-plus recommendations. We'll talk with him about that report in the 5 o'clock hour, in fact, at the top of the hour. Later this hour, we'll share a classic interview with Michael Barone. His book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. The book is published by Encounter and is a fascinating look at political parties and um, how they have, um, well, changed and stayed the same over the years. So that's coming up later this hour. Oh, by the way, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. Now, I see Dan Rice on a daily basis, but I don't get to see James or Clark. Well, not at all, I guess. I was going to say very often, but not at all. So I appreciate uh, they are working from their remote locations as am I. Taking a look at the headlines, the investigation into the shooting death of a black man during Friday night confrontation with police is gaining pace after the Atlanta Police Department released a 911 call and the disciplinary histories for both responding officers. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported on Monday that Garrett Wolf, the officer that shot and killed Rayshard Brooks, worked for the department for over seven years and received a written reprimand in 2017 over a use of force complaint involving a firearm. The paper reported that details of that incident are murky because the documents provided by police offered few details about the incident and the reprimand. The paper also reported that there were 12 other incidents during Rolf's career, but he was exonerated nine of those times. The incidents included five vehicle accidents, four citizen complaints, and a firearm discharge in August of 2015. The Atlanta uh, television station reported, and the paper reported, that there was no conclusion of the 2015 firearm discharge in the documents. Devin Brosnan, the other officer who was at the scene, had no disciplinary history prior to June the 14th. Rolf is uh, 27. He was fired and Brosnan was placed on administrative uh, leave or duty. Police Chief Erica Shields resigned a day after that shooting. Well, the department also released a 911 call from a Wendy's employee who reported Brooks' car blocking traffic at the drive-in or the drive through I tried to wake him up, she said, but he parked dead in the middle of the drive through so I don't know what's wrong with him, the caller said, according to Fox Atlanta. She did say she thought he uh, may have been intoxicated. 
In other news, U.S. coronavirus deaths could surpass 200,000 by the beginning of October as infections have spiked in parts of the country while numbers dropped in Europe, according to a report on Monday. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington raised its October 1st estimate by 18 percent from 169,000 to 201,000 fatalities due to COVID-19, which they related to eased social distancing and reopening measures, according to Reuters. The Institute said Florida would be among the hardest hit states with the projected 18,675 deaths after it saw uh, 2,000 new coronavirus cases for two straight days over the weekend. And other related developments... um, Uh, Ingram has slammed objections to the president's rally as proof that science has become obscenely politicized and the first coronavirus vaccine may protect against the disease, but not infection. Interesting uh, distinction. Well, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said on Monday that he would support and encourage a team to sign former San Francisco 49ers quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, according to a report, now he's been out of the NFL for about four years. Returning to the NFL after a four-year hiatus would be a challenge under any circumstance. In an interview with ESPN, Mike Greenberg on the return to sports, Goodell said he's pushing for an NFL team to sign Kaepernick, who hasn't played in the NFL since 2016 season when he started kneeling on the sideline at games during the national anthem to protest social injustice and political brutality. Well, listen, if he wants to resume his career in the NFL, then obviously it's going to take a team to make that decision, Goodell said, according to ESPN. But I welcome that, support a club uh, making that decision and encourage them to do that. Now, it would have to be a decision based on um, not just athleticism, again, with a four-year hiatus. He's in his mid-30s, I believe, and still a fairly young man, but an NFL uh, aging, that's uh, quite old. So we'll have to see. U.S. is expected to... um, Anyway, that's the end of that one. But in another uh, story, U.S. is expected to report uh, record rise in monthly retail sales. Well, in a six to three decision, Neil Gorsuch, the U.S. Supreme Court justice, delivered the opinion that stunned originalists and conservatives. Uh, John Birch of Alliance Defending Freedom explains that in this decision, the court rewrote Title VII such that sex now includes sexual orientation and gender identity. We're talking about the Supreme Court reinterpreting the Civil Rights Act and a bow to originalism. He went on to say, yet they have failed to convince Congress to change the law, despite many dozens of attempts because of the potential harm to women and girls, freedom of speech and religious liberty. Justice Alito, in dissent, said, uh, did not mince words, Uh, making the point that a more brazen abuse of our authority to interpret statutes is hard to recall. Rod Dreher says of uh, the decision, it's hard to overstate the magnitude of this decision and the size of the loss to religious and social conservatives. Finally, in the New York Times, Tori Osborne, a longtime leader in the movement and a former head of the National LGBTQ Task Force, said Monday's decision was more important in terms of impacting millions and millions of lives of ordinary people. It's bigger than marriage. It's a watershed. So if you've uh, simply brushed off this decision as of little consequence, you might want to think again. It will have significant import moving forward. Well, the uh, frustration, impatience and criticism of efforts to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus fueled pressure to reopen. That pressure to reopen the economy continues to rise, and so does the number of cases. Now a dozen states are seeing rising numbers. 
Now, this may have to do with um, better testing as well, but the rising number of cases are hitting hardest in the Sunbelt states like Arizona, California, Florida, and Texas. All four of those states reported their highest single-day increase in the number of, com- of confirmed cases over the weekend. The data are in. It's time to reopen. The emerging consensus on cost and benefit supports the view that um, a population-wide lockdowns should end, according to the Wall Street Journal. And the LA Times writes that even states that were strict on lockdown are pressing ahead with reopening. California's Governor Newsom says, so we've also made it abundantly clear that concurrent recognition and commitment that we are in a substantially different place than we were 90 days ago. And again, in the Wall Street Journal, regardless of what happens with the virus, the move change, Scott Gottlieb and Uvril Levin's make the point that broad shutdowns are unlikely to be tolerated this summer and therefore are unlikely to be proposed regardless of what epidemiology shows. Meanwhile, Mayor de Blasio is refusing to ask about protests in contact tracing. If you need um, one more reason to be critical of the New York mayor, as we see the expected spikes in the virus, contact tracing, uh, F- will be key in addressing those flare-ups. But de Blasio won't do the obvious. No person will be asked proactively if they attended a protest. A a spokesman for the mayor's uh, office told the city. If a person wants to proactive information, there is an opportunity for them to do so. So it's not important to, as your contact tracing, to actually trace the contact if it happens to be a politically correct action of uh, involving oneself in a protest. Well, Christianity Today has made a call for reparations. Timothy uh, Dalrymple uh, points out in Christianity we make reparations, but the history of racial injustice demands personal and corporate response. Perhaps the church can lead the way in biblical institutions by that, but you can read the full article in Christianity Today. Uh, Christianity Today is, of course, they can... Uh, 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 made news recently by weighing heavily into politics as they call for the impeachment and removal of President Trump. Today, Dalrymple argues that the church should do something, whether or not the government does. They, uh, the position is moving uh, of the papers, moving towards what we see from uh, Christians on the left, outlets like Sojourners and their recent piece from Kelly Brown Douglas, fostering a moral identity in a society shaped by a white supremacist culture that privileges whiteness, I'm quoting from the paper, even as it penalizes people of color, sometimes unto death means to self-consciously name and intentionally denounce white privilege. Maintaining white privilege is not about being racist, rather it's about benefiting from white supremacist realities. One does not have to be overtly racist to do that. We need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear a classic interview with Michael Barone, how America's politi- political parties rather change and how they don't. He'll be joining us in our next segment. And at 5 o'clock, we'll talk with Governor George Allen. He uh, served as governor of uh, uh, Virginia, their 67th, from 94 to 98, and as U.S. Senator 2001 to 2007. He most recently served on the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. They just released their final report on Monday. We'll talk with him about that when he joins us top of the next hour. Again, looking at some of the day's headlines, tribalism is uh, coming uh, for pandemic science. Our polarized political culture has reflexively approached the pandemic as just another culture war drama of this sort, demanding that We each prove our loyalty to our team and express exasperated outrage at the other. 
This has left us clinging to uh, various strategies rooted in provisional hypothesis about reopening the economy, for instance, or enforcing lockdowns or using hydroxychloroquine, insisting that evidence against our view does not exist and unwilling to change our minds when new facts emerge. So we are tribalists at the very heart of this pandemic and the science that's uh, coming out of it. Well, rocket fire took place in Israel, and after that rocket fire, Israel struck at Hamas, targeting in Gaza. Well, according to Israel Hayam, Israeli aircraft and tanks shell sites used by the terrorist group in southern uh, Gaza, including underground facilities. Aggression comes after Israel approved a $50 million Qatari cash infusion into the coastal enclave set to be delivered this week. Well, pride in America is at a record low. According to Gallup, the numbers are uh, the lowest since they were started. They started asking rather the question. A new Gallup poll conducted uh, between May 28th and June the 4th shows that the constant stream of anti-American rhetoric coming from the left for decades has reached fruition. Gallup found that pride in America has dipped to the lowest point since Gallup first asked the question back in 2001. Uh, expressions of national pride have become politicized in recent years, as has virtually everything else, much like U.S. attitudes on other issues such as climate change and labor unions. Much of this has occurred since Trump became president in 2017, with Democratic pride falling off dramatically since then. Last year saw a record 54-point gap in the percentage of Republicans and Democrats who are extremely proud to be Americans. Well, what divides America? Victor David, uh, Davis Hansen, he argues that class rather than race is what divides us. The next time we hear a lecture about caring from a woke Yale professor or a sermon or on systematic racism from a CEO or more Hollywood confessional video uh, dribble, we should pause and politically or rather politely ask, but where, uh, where do your children go to school and why do you live where you live and dine with whom you dine? Then remember class, not race, is what divides America. The truth that the upscale white progressive dare not utter. Uh, let's see. Um, the Daily Wire is revealing, this is on Wednesday, Democratic Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi gifted uh, Philanese Floyd, the brother of George Floyd, a folded, encased American flag during a photo op. The House Speaker posted the image to her Facebook page and notified the public that the flag she gifted uh, Philanese was the flag that flew over the Capitol on the day his brother was murdered. Mere weeks ago, Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer hypocritically uh, pontificated, uh, tear-gassing peaceful protesters without provocation just so that the president could pose for photos outside the St. John's Episcopal Church, dishonors every value that faith teaches us, emphasis uh, added. And that's uh, eliminating or not mentioning the photo op with she and others on one knee with the shawl around their neck that represented uh, those who helped the slave trade out of Africa. Whole nother story. Well, one up the um, Kentucky courts, the Supreme Court per Justice Neil Gorsuch has invented a new LGBTQ right. And adding insult to injury, the Supreme Court refuses to hear Trump, uh, the Trump administration's challenge to California's sanctuary law. Looking the other way, Justice Clarence Thomas accused his colleagues of dodging a gun case or cases, plural, according to the Washington Free Beacon. And President Trump is considering a new $1 trillion infrastructure stimulus plan. 
Former vice president and Democratic um, rival Joe Biden and the DNC have raised over $80 million in May, their biggest monthly haul of 2020, the presidential race. And the Trump campaign and the RNC has raised $14 million on Trump's birthday, breaking a fundraising record. Well, the Dow has rallied after record retail sales jumped some 17.7 percent in May and facing huge budget gaps, governments have furloughed furloughed rather, or laid off more than 1.5 million workers. Research finds lockdowns are far worse for health and lives than the coronavirus. You can read that at The Federalist. And no question, it's uh, going to make it harder to defend our religious freedoms as far as an organization being able to hire people of like mind. Conservative Christians concerned over the seismic implications of the Supreme Court ruling just passed uh, this uh, yesterday, and the NYPD uh, commissioner has disbanded the plain clothes anti-crime units there. Orthodox Jews have cut locks on closed New York City parks to let children play, and the standoff between the mayor and the Jewish, the Orthodox Jewish com- uh, community continues. The latest uh, regarding COVID-19, the FDA has withdrawn emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine, citing clinical trial failures. There's much that could be said about that in that uh, the drug tends to work better in the early stages, but not with a prolonged uh, infection. Patients with underlying conditions were 12 times uh, as likely to die of coronavirus as otherwise healthy people, according to the CDC, stating what we now know is the obvious. Mutation in new coronavirus has increased uh, chances of infection and mayor bill de blasio's contact tracing team isn't allowed to ask patients if they attended a protest so contact tracing only means we'll trace you under certain circumstances where you may have had contact with others who have the virus well the justice department has scheduled the first federal execution since 2003 for convicted child murderers and the noaa leaders are have violated agency ethics codes in the sharpie gate independent panel finds. You can find out more at the Washington Examiner. And the Supreme Court has validated the LGBTQ protections on grounds that activists reject, which is rather interesting. Well, the U.S. Embassy in Seoul has removed the Black Lives Matters banner uh, days after being unveiled. And North Korea has literally blown up the South Korean liaison office. More on that a bit later. Well, on this day in history, Donald J. Trump launches his campaign to become president of the United States with a speech at Trump Tower in Manhattan. 1858, accepting the Illinois Republican Party's nomination for the U.S. Senate, Abraham Lincoln says the slavery issue has to be resolved, declaring a house divided against itself cannot stand. 1903, Ford Motor Company is incorporated. 1911, IBM has its beginnings as the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, incorporating in New York State. On this day in history, 1963, the world's first female space traveler, 26, is launched into orbit by the Soviet Union aboard Vostok 6, uh, 6, Valentina Tereshkova. 2009, President Barack Obama meets with South Korean President Lee Myung-bak at the White House. Afterward, Obama declares North Korea a grave threat to the world and pledges the U.S. and its allies would enforce new penalties against the nuclear-armed nation aggressively. 2014, Obama notifies Congress that up to 275 troops could be sent to Iraq to provide support and security for U.S. personnel and the American embassy in Baghdad. Finally, also in 2004, a divided Supreme Court sides with gun control groups and the Obama administration, ruling that the federal government can strictly enforce laws that ban a straw purchaser from buying a gun for someone else. 
Up next, we're going to hear a classic interview with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't is the subject of our conversation. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll hear from Governor George Allen. He served as the governor of Virginia, also held a seat in the U.S. Senate from the state of Virginia. He now serves as the, or has served rather, on the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. They've recently released their report with some 200-plus recommendations. We'll talk about uh, the report and what they hope it will achieve. All of that's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, the election of 2016 prompted journalists and political scientists to write obituaries for the Republican Party or prophecies of a new dominance. But it was all rather familiar. Whenever one of the two great parties says a setback, we heard this is the end of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is going out of existence. Yet both parties survive and, well, they thrive. Well, in How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't, my next guest, American Enterprise Institute resident fellow Michael Barone, a renowned expert on American politics, contends that America's major political parties remain exceptionally resilient, even in the face of Donald Trump's unexpected victory and the hysterical analysis that it spawned. He argues that throughout American history, both parties Parties have maintained their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. Well, Michael Barone brings a deep understanding of our electoral history. Uh, he illuminates how both parties have adapted swiftly or haltingly to shifting opinion and emerging issues, to economic change and cultural currents, to demographic flux. At the same time, each has maintained a constant character. We'll ask him about that. There are they are the yin and yang, he writes, of the American political life, together providing vehicles for expressing most citizens' views in a nation that has always been culturally, religiously, economically, and ethnically diverse. Well, Michael Barone is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner, and author of the new book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. He's one of our nation's most renowned political analysts, co-author of the Almanac of of American politics since its first edition and author of several other books. We are so delighted to have you with us. Welcome, Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much, Georgine. And you gave a uh, very apt summary of my latest little book, America's, uh, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Uh, <laughs> it's based on, it's a short book, but it's based on my more than 50 years of experience of observing, participating in commenting on uh, America's political system and par- our partisan election. When I first read the the title of the book, I, f- I found it interesting, but I find the book so much more interesting than I anticipated and learned far more than I expected uh, from, as you put, point out, this little book. Um, let's talk about the, America's two major political parties. Uh, you point out that um, America is home to the oldest and third oldest political parties in the world. Tell us a little bit about the Democratic Party founded in 1832, and the Republican Party, founded in 1854? Well, the Democratic Party, founded 187 years ago to secure the re-election of Andrew Jackson and to prevent the uh, rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States. Um, They were successful in accomplishing those goals in the 
uh, within less than a decade. The Republican Party founded 165 years ago to oppose the Kansas-Nebraska Act that allowed slavery in territories, the territories where it had previously been forbidden, and uh, to prevent the spread of slavery. And of course, the Republican Party was successful within 11 years, not only preventing the spread of slavery, but in abolishing slavery altogether with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. But the parties went on. And they've had this basic, each of them has had its basic character, um, even while they changed position on substantive issues over a long period of time. The Republican Party has always been centered on a core constituency made up of people who are widely considered to be typical Americans, but who by themselves are not a majority. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of outgroups of people who consider themselves members of uh, groups that are not typical Americans, but who put together when they stick together, which they don't always do, when they stick together can be a majority. Uh, And that's as true today as it was in 1832 and 1854. You make the point that America's major political parties remain durable and adaptable. And I think many people are questioning that today as third parties emerge or independents are emerging. Do you see the trend that has survived over many, many years continuing even under today's uh, what we consider from our vantage point rather unique set of circumstances? Well, I, th- I think it's likely that they'll continue. Nothing is certain in uh, politics or Democratic-Republican uh, governance. But uh, the fact is these parties have each suffered uh, electoral setbacks much worse mm-hmm. than anything we've seen in the last 30 years. The Democrats won a huge victory. The Republicans suffered a huge defeat in 1932 when Franklin Roosevelt won the first of four elections. Uh, that gave us the the New Deal historians have told this story vividly, and it's a familiar one to people acquainted with American political history. But the Democratic Party also suffered a huge reverse in 1920. Uh, Their candidate, after eight years of the Democrat Woodrow Wilson as president, they had inflation, we had uh, uh, recession, we had an influenza epidemic, we had an inclusive conclusion to World War I, and, um, and a presidential uh, a president who had a stroke and was out of contact with the outer world uh, for at least eight months. And that uh, Democratic Party got only 34 percent of the vote. And yet the Democratic Party rebounded to become competitive with the Republicans in 10 years, just as the Republican Party became competitive with Democrats within 10 years after their huge defeat in 1932. Um, these parties represent uh, forces that are uh, pretty basic in American life, and uh, they just don't go away after they've suffered a big defeat. Uh, they recover, they uh, change their positions, they adapt to new times, and they take advantage of the incumbent party's mistakes. Given that history, and perhaps because that history is little known, why is it so common for journalists and political scientists to forecast the permanent triumph or imminent demise of our major political parties once there's been an electoral win or defeat. I've heard it over the course of my lengthening years uh, so many times that one party or the other is drawing to a close because of the outcome of the latest electoral challenge. Well, there's a in journalism, which I've been participating in or observing closely for more than 50 years. Um, there's a, a premium on being the first one with a story, on leading the pack, on, on sniffing out an emerging trend before everybody else does. So there's a tendency to say, well, the Democratic Party is through. 
uh, when they've, uh, you know, lost an election, when the Republican president's been reelected with 51% of the vote, as happened in 2004. Uh, or after President Obama was reelected in 2012, again with 51% of the vote, the Republican Party is through. Um, people tend to forget when you made false predictions of something that uh, never comes to pass. But uh, if you if you're out there first with something that does happen, um, there's a professional premium. And they think <laughs> that's perhaps kind of a cynical view. But, you know, it, it, one of the things you want to do in journalism is to try to spot emerging trends, try to spot stories that other people have missed. Um, and sometimes, of course, that produces very productive journalism. The other factor operating is that many of these stories are written by optimists and who are partisan. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the people predicting the demise of the Republican Party tend to be optimistic Democrats. Uh, when pe predictors of the uh, of the demise of, of 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 the Democratic Party will come from optimistic Republicans or pessimistic Democrats. <laughs> which undermines the credibility of journalism in general and partisans in particular. One of the, the cases that you make, let me just say this, I appreciate that in the book, how America's political parties change and how they don't. You give us a context and history that helps us make sense of our current day so that we are a little more cautious in embracing, you know, the latest pronouncement. But one of the things that I found rather interesting is the point you make that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party both maintain their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. I think people sometimes wonder if a party has moved too far in one direction. For example, the argument now is that Democrats are moving far too far to the left. Are they maintaining their... Um, their core um, values, their essential character, or are we seeing just the common shifts and adjustments that we've seen over uh, the years? Well, politicians are optimists usually, and uh, they sometimes overestimate the extent to which public opinion is in line with their own uh, policies. And, uh, you know, if, uh, it, or they simply stay true to policies they back, even though the public doesn't go along with them. So you saw the Democratic Party lose five out of six presidential elections from 1968 to 88, um, coming right after most political observers said, gee, the Democrats have a natural majority in this country. They proceed to lose five out of six elections. At least some of those, their nominees were well to the left of the part of, of where the public was uh, at that time. And uh you know, eventually Bill Clinton came along, secured a Democratic nomination, which almost nobody seemed to want that year, and uh, came out with a somewhat more moderate platform that adjusted to uh, what, pre you know, the, the problems that were li the programs that were liabilities for previous Democratic nominees. Um, and he won the election. Uh, and Democrats have won four out of the next seven out of the seven um, presidential elections that followed, even as Republicans won majorities in the uh, House of Representatives in most of the congressional elections. So, you know, uh, politics, uh, political uh, programs, uh, politicians, uh, uh, platforms are a mixture of uh, calculation and, and conviction. Yeah. Um, things they believe to be right and things they believe could be popular. Um, the proportions of calculation and conviction vary in the different politicians. Uh, and sometimes there can be, uh, you know, more conviction uh, than there is calculation, and they find that they lose. But sooner or later, as we've seen 
over 187, 165 years, they adjust. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with uh, my guest, Michael Barone. The book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Fascinating analysis. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Michael Barone. The book is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. I think you will find much surprising information in the book as well as very relevant history. Let's talk about the essential characteristics of both the Republican and Democrat Party. What are those characteristics? And I know that there's some blurring of lines, although with the 2016 election, perhaps less so. What are some of these uh, essential characteristics? Well, the essential characteristic of the Republican Party, I think, over the years has been that it's centered on a core constituency of people who are considered by themselves and others to be typical Americans, but by themselves are are not a majority of the public. They need more votes in order to win. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of opposites of different groups considered not to be typical Americans, but who, if they're united, make up a majority. So in the 19th century, um, the Andrew Jackson coalition was Southern slaveholders and later segregationists on the one hand, and uh, Catholic immigrants in big cities. Uh, they basically, the Democrats believed in segregation in the South and the saloon in the North. Um, and uh, the Republican core constituency in its beginnings in the 1850s were New England Yankees and their offspring who moved westward across the Young Republic to upstate New York, uh, northern Ohio, southern Michigan, founded the city of Chicago, moved on beyond to Iowa and Nebraska. That was the core support for the Republican Party. Um, And today, obviously, you have different coalitions. The core Republican constituency, I, I would characterize as white married Christians. Not thought by many people to be typical Americans. Uh, once people fulfilling that description were a majority of the population, they're not a majority anymore. Uh, and uh, But they're a large group, and they are faithful to the Republican Party by and large, and uh, the, the Republicans try to build majorities from there. Uh, the Democratic Party is a coalition of outside groups. If you look at the groups that typically vote 85 to 90 percent Democratic, you see uh, relatively low-income, non-college graduate black Americans, uh, very religious, tend to be avid churchgoers and believe in traditional relig- Christian morality, uh, and uh, what my friend Joel Kotkin calls gentry liberals, uh, high-income people with uh, college degrees, graduate school degrees, uh, white people, uh, very secular. Very, This is the group that is least likely to believe in traditional uh, religions and more likely to believe uh, in, in, uh, in, in that religious conduct should not in any way be privileged and kind of dubious about uh, the, how far the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the First Amendment should go. Um, those are groups that have very different incomes. They have very different uh, religious beliefs and beliefs about the price of religion and public life and public issues. Um, they have very different views on, for example, same-sex marriage, uh, but uh, they are united in supporting the Democratic Party, at least if somebody doesn't come forward and spotlight those issues and make them the biggest issues of the day. How did the two parties evolve in the 20th century, and how do you see that either continuing or changing in the 21st? Well, the Democratic Party in the 20th century 
uh, was a party that for many years contained a large conservative bloc as well as mm -hmm. uh, Democratic liberals who backed the policies, the big government policies of Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, the conservative group came partly from the Democrats' 19th century support of free markets and free trade. Uh, didn't believe in government interference. Obviously, that changes under Wilson and Roosevelt, but many Democrats continue to identify with that. And it comes from Democrats, Southern Democrats in particular, um, carrying a Democratic uh, Party identification that goes back to the Civil War and to um, opposition to the conduct of the Civil War or the aftermath, where opposition to Republicans attempts to secure equal rights for black Americans in Reconstruction period. And um, that lasts a long time because the Civil War was a hugely searing event. I mean, go to any small town uh, that had, you know, a thousand people in a township in, uh, in the 1860s. And in the town, in the courthouse square, there's a monument there in the north and in the south. Uh, it's a monument of, with names of people who died in that civil war, 30, 40, 50 names in a town of a thousand. That was a really searing impact. So you have in 1960, the um, John F. Kennedy, liberal Democrat, Catholic from Massachusetts, his number two state in percentage terms was Georgia, Southern Georgia, Baptist state, uh, you know, a, a, a conservative state on a number of issues that most black people in Georgia then were not allowed to vote. Um, they, why did they vote for Kennedy? Well, it was only 96 years since General Sherman's troops marched through Georgia and they were mm -hmm. still angry about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so attitudes changed as uh, President Jimmy Carter from South Georgia um, is a good example uh, of that. Uh, his political views, I think, during his presidency evolved significantly and in a positive direction, in my opinion, uh, from what those he probably held as a younger man in segregated Georgia. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, that took a long time to change because the impact of the Civil War was so great. Um, likewise, you have liberal Republicans uh, in many of the northern states uh, and in some of the southern states, too, although they seldom won statewide elections there before the 1970s. And they were, uh, why were they, you know, they supported many of the New Deal government expansion programs, people like Governor, four-term Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York. But they opposed, why did they oppose the Democrats? Well, they felt the Democrats ran corrupt urban political machines. They felt the Democrats got, were dependent on the votes of violent, prone labor unions. They disliked the Democrats because they had a lot of segregationist Southerners in their party. Um, that was true in 1960. By the 1980s, those factors had really kind of vanished from the political scene. And Nelson Rockefeller's heirs, including his nephew, Jay Rockefeller, ran for office and won as a Democrat. Mm. In what ways um, have the parties not changed in, in uh, nod to the subtitle of your book? Well, not changed. I think that same basic character. Republicans clustered around a core constituency. Democrats, a, uh, a coalition of, 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 uh, of, of various groups, mm -hmm. of outgroups that are often have conflicts among each other. I mean, you know, the Demo the, the, we, this year we see voters who identify themselves as Republicans are giving 90% support to Donald Trump. That's even though he is different on some issues like trade, immigration, and some aspects of foreign policy from 
the previous most recent Republican president, George W. Bush, uh, for whom people who identified as Republicans gave 85 to 90 percent support as well. So the Republicans tend to support their incumbents in most circumstances. Uh, Democratic Party, we see some uh, differences on cultural issues in the Democratic Party. I noted that the presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke from El Paso, Texas, uh, said that he doesn't uh, want uh, he doesn't want ta- he wants tax exemptions to be taken away from churches mm-hmm. and religious institutions that don't perform same-sex marriage. Well, that's going to close a bunch of Roman Catholic churches and uh, welfare institutions in his hometown of uh, El Paso, Texas, where they serve a predominantly Mexican-American population. It's going to close down or severely impact uh, historically black churches, which have played a tremendous, go back to it before the Civil War, and have played a tremendously constructive role in American life for uh, almost two centuries um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't, uh, conduct same sex marriages. Uh, so that's, you know, Beto O'Rourke right now is, uh, not running well in the polls and that statement probably didn't get a lot of traction among Democrats. But, uh, I think that, uh, if you were running ads for another candidate, Democratic candidate, you want to win, uh, votes of black Americans who are a majority of the Democratic primary turnout in South Carolina, the early state of South Carolina. Uh, you might want to bring up that issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book, once again, is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. And rather than a dry, uninteresting tome, it is fascinating in its historic detail and relevance to not only what's what we've seen in the past, but what's happening today. Michael Barone, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for talking. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for your kind words. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Well, in a final report that was released on Monday, the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission has made 265 recommendations for getting America back to work, stopping the spread of COVID-19, and being prepared for the next pandemic. Well, those recommendations are aimed at federal, state, and local government leaders, as well as business and nonprofit sector. Amid the pandemic that's killed 115,000 Americans and wiped out millions of jobs and thousands of businesses. Well, joining us to talk more about that is Governor George Allen. He served as the 67th governor of Virginia from 94 to 98 and as the U.S. uh, senator from Virginia in 2001 to 2007. There's much more that could be said, but you should know that Governor Allen served on the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission that just released this final report. Governor Allen, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Georgine, and all your wonderful listeners in the, the Portland area. Well, I was thank telling you. your, your station manager or, or whatever, whoever's in charge <laughs> of this, that I have a, a map of the Lewis and Clark expedition. I was helping out Gordon Smith running for re-election, and I know there's no sales tax there, so I paid $6 for it. The frame <laughs> costs more, but it's a wonderful map of uh, the West and how it was known in the days of Lewis and Clark in the early 1800s. And I know all your Oregon listeners are proud to say they stayed on the Oregon side of the Columbia River rather than Washington. <laughs> That's right. So that kind of marks that Oregon-Virginia connection. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Well, you served on the Heritage Foundation's National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. First of all, tell us a little bit about the commission, who was part of it and why it was um, developed in addition to what Washington was doing with the vice president overseeing the task force that the president commissioned. Well, I think the, the, the vice president really provided outstanding yes. uh, steady leadership for their task force. Kay James is the head of the Heritage Foundation. She's president, chaired this commission. Uh, I had the honor of having her as a cabinet secretary when I was governor when we got through welfare reform, and she thought that we sh- she and I was honored to be selected of 17 members. It's a diverse group of folks from all over the country. Uh, J.C. Watts is on it, Bill Frisk, people from the religious views, for those who care about those with disabilities, small business owners, and it's really an outstanding commission that worked fast. And the Heritage staff is just outstanding. I've never dealt with such a, a great group of researchers and getting ideas and thoughts together in a coherent way. And these recommendations, I think, are so important for, for people at all levels of government and if people don't read anything, read the fifth phase five, which is looking to the future. We've learned a lot. The fog of war and the panic about this COVID-19 situation, mistakes were made. We, they'll have the action, after-action reviews. But there's things that state legislators need to look at and, and possibly revise the emergency powers that are granted to governors for some of the decisions that have been made and are continuing to be made. Uh, one of the, the key things that I think is important is schools open up in the fall. Uh, the children, we've seen that, gosh, most of the deaths, 80% of the deaths are for people over uh, 65, and mm-hmm. most of the majority are in nursing homes. And so we, in Virginia, not a single person under age 22 has died from this virus. And then I think the most important thing, uh, and one of my very favorite recommendations, so that we're better prepared in the future when there's another pandemic uh, arising, because this won't be the last, is that Congress and the federal government need to create a more competitive and friendly environment so that there's more of our medicines, pharmaceutical supply chains that are stably made here in the United States of America rather than being so dangerously dependent and vulnerable to markets from adverse and unreliable regimes, and that means China. And we have very Mm -hmm. specific tax regulatory approaches that can make our country much more competitive and have that uh, manufacturing of these essential medicines, and including equipment made here in the United States. At one time, before they changed the laws, Puerto Rico, a, a territory, uh, was a, just a, a great oasis of pharmaceutical manufacturing. And so whether it's Puerto Rico or the entire United States, we ought to make the United States the best place in the world for our national health security to manufacture essential pharmaceutical ingredients and agents rather than worrying about what China might do. And, I, I yeah. heck, Georgine, I wouldn't give my dog food from from China. I don't care to be ingesting medicines that are adulterated or or fake or uh, from from China. I just wouldn't want to put anything in my in my stomach from China. 
which has certainly been a problem. I know one of the unique um, aspects of this uh, study that we're talking about, this commission's um, recommendations, is that you balanced both the lives and livelihoods of those uh, impacted across the country. That's been the challenge. Do we put the emphasis on saving lives? Do we put the emphasis on saving the economy? You you strike a balance in how we can do both, because both are essential if the country right. is going to move forward. Right, and that's what I wanted to bring. To the, when, when Kay James asked me to be in, I said, I'm going to try to bring some balance and, and the concept of proportionality to this, because we do want to save both lives and livelihoods. And I think we've learned enough that the mistakes don't need to be made, that you have to devastate so many small businesses and the arrogance of a government saying that some business or some medical practice is non-essential is certainly essential to the business owners and the millions of people who work for those businesses. So we both both are very important. And so I think what we've learned from this is that the people who are most vulnerable, those are, are generally elderly people with underlying conditions, are the ones who are most susceptible. There's also uh, statistics have shown from this that African-American and Hispanic persons have a disproportionately high fatality rate compared to white persons. And there's a lot of factors why that happens, mm-hmm. but that's another way of, of understanding the data and the evidence that those who are most vulnerable need to be protected, but we don't need to shut everyone down, cage everyone in our, in our country, including the free enterprise system, when there are, are proper good ways of doing it. And one of the big fears, Georgine, for the, for the shutdowns, including of medical facilities and people not getting diabetes treatment or, or cancer screenings, was they thought that our hospitals are going to get inundated and flooded. Well, that has not happened. And so I think it, I think from if they, if if governors, legislators, Congress, the executive branch, the private sector, look at our recommendations they can see this can be managed in a way that does protect people who are most at risk, who are most vulnerable, particularly, again, the elderly. And then the rest need to work smartly. Things are going to change. I think distancing, keeping your distance and sanitation and disinfecting is, is going to be with us in the future. But that doesn't mean we have to shut down our entire economy. Absolutely. I should mention that Vice President Pence actually called uh, Chairman uh, James uh, and thanked uh, her for the commission's work uh, on Monday on the day that it was released. By the way, in uh, in connection to Oregon and Virginia, when uh, Kay Cole James was the president of Oregon Right to Live, she came to Oregon and stayed in my home uh, for a couple of nights. Uh, so she did lucky? a convention here. So, <laughs> yeah, so we do not, have a connection. Not, not, only, not only did you get a lot of her wisdom, you got a lot of her great wit. Her yeah. whole family <laughs> great. Kay is just one of the best people I've met in my entire life. And she's, she's wise, she's smart, and she's got a great sense of humor. Yeah, she does. Yeah, and I, I'm grateful to call her a mutual friend. Yeah, well, anybody who knows Kay feels that they've been blessed to have her in their lives. And I know Susan and my wife, Susan, and I feel that way. Now, um, the report has been released, and my understanding is the 17 commissioners are going to be working to help implement this with uh, uh, folks, uh, policymakers in Washington and uh, in state houses across the country. Right, exactly. Then we go on really important uh, media shows like Georgine Rice's show <laughs> to make sure that the people, and that the people are the owners of the government, they know about these ideas. 
They can go to coronaviruscommission.com or go to Heritage and look at our recommendations. It's important for state legislators, for attorneys general, governors, members of Congress, obviously the executive branch, and others to look at these ideas. And, and, and I, I think it's very important uh, to make sure that you're measuring what states, what the federal government is doing. Kay doesn't like to pass, uh, none of us, none of this commission want to just have some really nice uh, document that is on someone's table or in someone's shelves. We want to see action. And so we're going to follow through, make sure that we meet with uh, decision makers, public servants, as well as make sure that the people know about these ideas so that they, they have some, some backup, some evidence yeah. to say, yeah, that makes sense, or this could be done better, or this needs to be reformed. I have not heard a single person who says, I think it's really great that we are, we're so vulnerable to China for pharmaceutical agents for, for our medicines. I have yet to hear anyone. And that ought to be something that unifies the whole yeah. country. There's no politics, no partisan politics in this. It's what's best for Americans, free people, and free enterprise, so that we, when we come out of this, we're stronger than ever before. And one area, clearly, we need to be stronger in is the manufacturing of, of uh, protective equipment and medicines for our country. I'm one who's always advocated for American energy independence, which we now have. Uh, we also need American national health. Absolutely. Well, Governor Allen, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It's been an honor to have you on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure, Georgine, and I hope to see you somewhere on the trail ahead. <laughs> I look forward to that, too. Thank you so much. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. New numbers in from the Oregon Health Authority. Apparently, 278 new cases in the state of Oregon, two new deaths as a result of COVID-19 resulting from the coronavirus. So those are the latest numbers uh, that we have uh, released today by the Oregon Health Authority. President Trump today signed an executive order on law enforcement reform and said chokeholds will be banned except if an officer's life is at risk as the nation reels from the death of George Floyd in the custody of the Minneapolis Police Department and the ensuing unrest. The president made comments in the Rose Garden in which he struck a conciliatory tone while also expressing some support for police before officially signing the order, which he characterized as promoting the highest professional standards. He also said these standards will be as high and as strong as there is on Earth. Wow. Uh, We're united by our desire to ensure peace and dignity and equality for all Americans, the president said, noting that he met with a family of uh, um, Ahmad Arbery, who died at the hands of two white men earlier this year in a high-profile case in Georgia and families of other victims of racially charged violence. These are incredible uh, people, and it's so sad. Many of these families lost their loved ones in deadly interactions with police. All Americans mourn by your side. Your loved ones will not have died in vain. I can promise to fight for justice for all of our people, and I uh, gave a commitment to all of those families. We are going to pursue what we said, and we will pursue it, and we will be pursuing it strongly, end quote. Well, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, Representative Jim Jordan, Senator Tim Scott, and Attorney General William Barr were among the number of dignitaries at the attendance and signing ceremony. There were also representatives from a number of law enforcement organizations present as well. According to the White House, the order touches on the use of force, 
best practices, information sharing on track, uh, rather two track officers who have repeated complaints against them and federal incentives for police departments to deploy non-police experts on issues like mental health, homelessness and addiction. The president said law enforcement officers would only be allowed to use chokeholds if their lives were in imminent danger. As part of this uh, new uh, credentialing process, chokeholds will be banned, uh, the president said. The White House on Monday said that the president stands behind our dedicated law enforcement all the way, but that the executive order would help uphold clear and high policing standards, promote accountability in law enforcement, and help equip police officers for constructive community engagement. All of that taking place earlier today. Well, Donald Trump, the president, told reporters on Monday that uh, John Bolton, his former national security advisor, will have a very strong criminal problem if he proceeds in publishing his tell-all book. Bolton's memoir is set to be released on the 23rd. Just as a reminder, today is the 16th, so we'll see how this uh, unfolds. Uh, But Trump called it highly inappropriate and said that he would consider every conversation he has had with Bolton to be highly classified. Bolton was Trump's third national security advisor, and his memoir is set to be released later this month. Uh, Trump ousted Bolton as national security advisor last fall, which came about um, the uh, after the pair had disputes over how to handle foreign policy challenges like Iran, North Korea, and Afghanistan. Bolton, a meticulous note-taker and Trump's third national security advisor, is expected to shed new light on the president's dealings with foreign countries as well as his impeachment. The president says if he wrote a book and if the book gets out, he's broken the law. And I would think uh, you would have a criminal problem. I hope so. And he added, if this guy is writing things about conversations or about anything, and maybe he's not telling the truth, he's been uh, known not to tell the truth a lot, end quote. Well, Bolton's uh, book is titled The Room Where It Happened. It was initially set to be published earlier this year, but it was reportedly met with delays as it passed through pre-publication reviews by the National Security Council. We'll see um, what happens over the next few days as the release date comes and goes and whether or not there will, in fact, be a a release of this highly controversial book, at least from the perspective of the um, of the White House. Uh, Meanwhile, China violated the international health regulations of the World Health Organization in the early days of the coronavirus outbreak. Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee allege in a new report on the origins of the pandemic. The interim 50-page report, a copy of which was obtained by National Review, also raises new questions about the complicit role that the World Health Organization, or WHO, played in allowing the Chinese Communist Party to delay crucial information about the novel virus. It recommends that WHO Director General Tedros um, be removed from his position for his full-throated defense of the uh, CCP's response and embrace of their revisionist history and calls for an international investigation into the failure to slow the spread of the disease. It is highly likely that ongoing pandemic could have been prevented, it states. As such, it is incumbent upon the United States and like-minded WHO member states to ensure the accountability and reforms necessary to prevent the uh, organization's malfeasance from giving rise to a third pandemic during the 21st century. Meanwhile, again, 278 new cases of coronavirus in Oregon on Tuesday, all um, uh, an all-time high. The number of the new daily cases of the novel coronavirus once again soared to a record level on Tuesday with these uh, 278 cases. The previous record had been 184 in a single day. That was set Monday. The latest number Tuesday continues an unsettling trend in the state as health officials scramble to understand the source of the spread 
and contact trace. Now, I don't know if Oregon is following the same pattern as in New York, where questions about one's whereabouts, if it was related to a a protest or demonstration, is excluded from the tracing. But we'll see. The Oregon Health Authority hasn't yet put out a new release with any explanations for the increase. Officials uh, Monday say they expect a lot more cases due to an outbreak at the Lighthouse United Pentecostal Church in Union County, is interesting how large might that lighthouse Pentecostal church be there. But nonetheless, video that was published on the church's Facebook page on the 24th, but was later deleted, showed hundreds of church attendees standing close together as they sang and swayed to the music. So hundreds, we're being told in this video. Uh, Tuesday's record was preceded by a string of highs in which eight of the last 10 days has surpassed 100 new cases, 146 on the 7th of June, 114th on the 8th of June, 142 on Thursday, Friday had 158, Saturday 101, Sunday 184, and Monday 278. Uh, Previously, the number of uh, new cases in the state had never exceeded 100. So uh, it will be interesting to see if the um, video that they're citing from this uh, Lighthouse United Pentecostal Church in Union City uh, is in fact the source, or if there are other explanations for what has happened, but that's uh, what they are currently citing as a potential explanation. Meanwhile, Oregon Governor Kate Brown is calling the legislature into special session on June the 24th to pass uh, police accountability legislation and adopt some of her coronavirus executive orders into law. Law enforcement oversight will be the focus of the session, she said in a statement. Before demonstrations erupted nationwide over the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the governor had planned a special session to rebalance the state uh, budget and tackle other coronavirus policies. That budget work can wait until a second special session later in the summer, she said on Tuesday. Well, the public's call for significant police reform is too urgent to wait until the next regular legislative session, the governor said. It's imperative that the legislature take action on these issues right Right away. Well, the governor said she also wants lawmakers to pass into law several pandemic-related policies she's implemented via executive order, including the temporary eviction moratorium and protecting CARES Act payments from garnishment. Legislative leaders are still working out the logistics of how the legislature will hold the session amid coronavirus social distancing guidelines, the governor's deputy communications director said in a text. And the state Senate Majority Leader Bob Wagner of Lake Oswego said in a statement that we have the opportunity to listen to our colleagues and the People of Color Caucus and the tens of thousands of Oregonians calling for an end to police brutality and systematic racism. We must start that work now. Again, the 24th is the date set for the special session. How and where it will be held yet to be determined. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will return uh, in just a few moments. Again, we're looking at some of the top headlines of the day. I also want to remind you on Wednesday, that's tomorrow's program, we're going to sit in studio, well, virtual studio with the Union Gospel Mission. Their Summer of Safety Radiothon is coming up tomorrow on the program. We're looking forward to bringing you up to date on how they are facing the challenges that have always been their priority So join us tomorrow for the Union Gospel Mission Summer of Safety Radiothon. Looking forward to that. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, what is it going to take for Multnomah County to reopen? Apparently, state and county officials can't seem to agree on the progress or the process in order for that to happen. There's a significant difference in opinion between the state and county's top public health doctors. Well, 
According to Oregon Live, Governor Brown angered many small business owners, no big surprise there, in Multnomah County last week when hours before the June 12th opening of Multnomah County, the last to open in the state of Oregon, the county's long-targeted reopening date, she put a statewide hold on all applications preventing uh, the most populous county to enter phase one. We're not even talking about phase two. Restaurants, gyms, personal service businesses had remained limited or closed. The decision also revealed a significant difference in opinion between state and county top health doctors. Dr. Dean Seidlinger, the Oregon State Health Officer, said one uh, one of the troubling signs in Multnomah County was so many new cases did not have an obvious source. Over 40% of the cases identified last week were not traced to a source, he said. But Multnomah County's Dr. Jennifer Vines correctly pointed out that while tracing causes uh, uh, cases rather is required in phase one, and the county is doing that, tracing cases to a source, a specific uh, percent of the time is not required in phase one. Well, this is a metric that the state is using. I believe it's part of their phase two criteria, so it wasn't one we were particularly focused on, says Dr. Vines. Well, the state also noted there are more positive cases, but those were expected as testing increased in the county and across the state. The state also said hospitalization numbers were on the rise, but county officials point out the rise is small and the numbers low. And if state leaders worried about rising numbers in other counties, the governor uh, could have ordered a pause, but uh, still allowed Multnomah County to go forward. So there is a back and forth disagreement. Um, the, the governor didn't offer any specifics uh, last Friday when she made her announcement, but because of the fundamental disagreement, it's still difficult to learn exactly what it will take to allow Oregon's only county not yet in phase one to move forward. I live in that county, and it's rather frustrating. I will continue to work with doctors and public health experts to assess whether to lift the pause, extend the pause, or make other adjustments, the governor said. Well, as a practical matter, the Portland Business Alliance, Portland's Chamber of Commerce, they've argued keeping mostly small businesses closed in Multnomah County but allowing them to stay open in neighboring Clackamas and Washington counties only encourages the spread of the virus. Uh, CEO for the Portland Business Alliance issued a scathing tweet that read in part, more residents will continue to travel to adjacent counties for their services, risking more outbreaks, and the economic damage will continue to debilitate our small business communities in the heart of the state's economy. When asked specifically what it will take to allow Multnomah County to enter phase one, the governor's office issued a statement that basically repeated what she said on Friday, which is pretty much nothing specific. Well, it is rather frustrating. Well, the city of Seattle, I mean, it could be worse. We could be in Seattle. And protesters occupying the uh, Capitol Hill organized protest, CHOP, as it's now known, have reached an agreement that will remove temporary roadblocks and replace them with concrete barriers. I guess that's something. The Seattle Department of Transportation is installing concrete barriers in the middle of Pine Street running east and west. So you've got the city's uh, Department of Transportation going along with this um, anarchistic move. Um, anyway, the, this is going to allow for emergency service vehicles to pass through the area, not average taxpaying citizens, but the emergency vehicles. The agreement will reduce the arena protesters previously called Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ, from about six or seven city blocks to just three. This is the first time in weeks uh, traffic will be able to pass uh, by the shuttered East Police Precinct. You know, this is the people zone, but the people are not welcome there. It's been confirmed the agreement to, to replace the wooden barriers set in place by the protesters with concrete barriers with the Seattle uh, Fire Chiefs, uh, Harold Scoggins, the Seattle Department of Transportation and Seattle Public Utilities. The police department is not overseeing the concrete barrier being put in place. 
The development comes as the city council on Monday voted unanimously to ban police from using chokeholds and crowd control devices like tear gas and pepper spray. So good luck if violence erupts in Seattle. We'll see what uh, what police or other uh, operatives will be able to do. Meanwhile, journalist Andy No says Seattle's occupied zone is like J- Jekyll and Hyde, depending on day or night. There is a stark contrast, he writes, between how protesters staying at Seattle's Capitol Hill organized protest zone, now called CHOP, um, uh, behave during the day and during the night. Uh, in a Monday interview with Fox News at night with host Shannon Bream, uh, he explained that the area protesters are calling uh, CHOP uh, the could be described as a sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. During the day, he said it could be considered peaceful and one, if one ignored boarded-up businesses or graffiti calling for the murder of police. But when the sun goes down, the criminal elements come out. Unfortunately, last night that was made very clear when one person on a microphone and a loudspeaker was able to sick a mob um, of probably more than 100 people to chase down this business that was several blocks away. They just all descended on it. It was pure anarchy, he remarked. Uh, they pushed up against the fence and all rushed in. It could uh, could have been extremely violent, he recalled. Fortunately, it wasn't. According to uh, what I heard from the owner and staff, they had detained one of the, their comrades of the camp for alleged arson and theft. And because of that, all of his uh, comrades came to help get him out. The police never came. Uh, Nyo said that uh, while they were, they may ha- be, I should say, they, there may be some businesses in the area that are sympathetic to the protesters' cause. Many others are not. For example, there's a Trader Joe's nearby who announced just a few days ago that they're closing indefinitely because of security and safety issues. Uh, so when you take that and you also see all the businesses that are boarded up, that no cars can drive into this area, I don't see how the few anecdotes of positive experiences of some owners could be representative of the others, particularly when there are now some um, dissident voices coming out to speak and they are having to um, do it anonymously because of threats of retaliation. So if you are opposed to what's going on there, you don't speak up because law enforcement won't protect you and you could be targeted. Another contributing factor to what Nyo uh, described as a chaotic atmosphere is that many people have been seen openly carrying weapons like handguns, rifles, batons, and knives. In addition, he highlighted other concerns like rampant drug use, homelessness, and lack of medical care. At night, it's completely different vibe than during the day. He asserted, uh, you see vagrants come there. You see them. Uh, some of them are dealing with uh, mental and health crises. There was an ambulance that was called yesterday. The fact that police are not going in should tell you quite a lot. And this is what my own sourcing uh, um, has told me last night is that anybody, uh, if anybody needs help, you actually have to leave the physical zone and go return to the U.S., let's say, to get help. So this is uh, now one week experiment in anarchy and chaos, and those who live there have to fend for themselves. So an interesting observation. I mentioned earlier that um, Mayor de Blasio has decided that in contact tracing, they're not going to ask uh, whether or not the individual was involved in a protest. And this is only to determine your proximity to other people so that warnings and tracing of the uh, of the virus can be made. It's not for political purposes. They're not keeping a list of names of people involved in protests to be used it for other purposes. It's designed to trace contact with other people and to determine if there's an outbreak and what to do about it. Well, uh, Mayor de Blasio decided that they're not going to go so far as to contact trace those who may have contracted the virus in the context of a protest or a demonstration. 
Uh, I noted the Daily Signal uh, had an interesting article by Kevin Pham that pointed out that social distancing double standards on protests betray sound health policy and politicizes the whole thing, which, of course, has been politicized in so many ways from the beginning. He writes that sound public policy is sound public policy regardless of the political movement. The effectiveness of a public health measure is contingent on the cooperation of the public, and the cooperation of the public is contingent on the public's trust. As such, it is catastrophically destructive to the goals of public health to support participation in the mass protests following the killing of George uh, of George Floyd. Supporting the protests or the message of the protests is a personal decision which every individual must make for himself. But if the COVID-19 pandemic continues apace, the mitigation efforts remain as relevant now as they did before people took to the streets in thousands. And certainly, if that is the case, that people are choosing to express their dissent, Contact tracing cannot be politically motivated or biased if we are going to try to address and balance both interests at the same time. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, two dozen evangelical scholars have released a joint statement condemning racism as contrary to the evangelical gospel and acknowledging the realities of racism that existed throughout evangelical history. Now, this is a remarkable thing in that evangelicals were largely absent during the civil rights movement. The new evangelical statement on the gospel and racism was released on Monday as nationwide protests continued in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and just days after the controversial killing of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. Today's situation requires more than a statement, but certainly no less than a statement, the document reads. As evangelical academic voices, we condemn racism as contrary to scripture and to the evangelical gospel. The statement originates from members of the Evangelical Theological Society's Executive Committee, according to David Dockery, who's the president of the International Alliance for Christian Education. ETS was founded in 1949. It serves as a professional association of scholars, teachers, pastors, and students, and is dedicated to the written expression of theological thought and research. Well, the statement explains that while evangelical history includes many positive voices for justice, such as slave trade abolitionist William Wilberforce, the history also includes negatively those who assimilated the values of their surrounding unjust culture. According to organizers, the effort's mission is to listen, mourn, speak, and act in accordance with the gospel in our own lives, in our institutions, in our churches, and in our communities. Now, to many of you, this may not be uh, as significant as it is both significant and remarkable to me as an African-American. But they go on to say, as we grieved over recent events in our communities, we realized that although a statement is insufficient, it is necessary. The website created to host the statement online, which went up on uh, Monday, uh, reads, we are compelled to declare that the gospel stands opposed to racism and so too must people of the gospel. The statement was signed by the Evangelical Theological Society president and Asbury Theological Seminary Biblical Studies professor Craig Keener, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary theology professor Greg Allison, and Southern Baptist Theological Seminary president Al Moeller, who also serves as ETS president-elect and program chair. The Southern Baptist Convention's flagship seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, released a report in 2018 detailing the school's history of racism and past support of slavery. At the time, Moeller called for the institution to repent of our own sins and offer full lament for the inherited legacy. Other signatories include Paul P. Powell, the endowed chair in preaching at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University, Vincent Vicote, 
Associate Professor of Theology at Wheaton College, Daryl Bach, a Senior Research Professor of New Testament at Dallas. As of Tuesday, over 150 people signed on to that statement. The document declares that the gospel calls on everyone to come to God on the same terms and to become one body in Christ. In reconciling Jew and Gentile in Christ, Ephesians 2.16, surmounting a barrier that God himself once established, God in Christ summons us to surmount every barrier erected merely by human sinfulness. The statement explains that scripture does not discriminate by color. And on the most common understanding of Acts 8, the first Gentile convert may have been black and from Africa. The statement adds that Jesus was both by his example and his teaching, summoning Christians to serve and love fellow believers to the point of laying down our lives for one another and to love all our neighbors as ourselves. This invites us to be swifter to listen to others than to speak, Ephesians 4, James 1, to mourn with those who suffer, Romans 12, and to join them in acting for justice on their behalf, Isaiah 1, Luke 11, James 1. The statement concludes. According to Dockery, Keener uh, did most of the heavy lifting when it came to creating the document. However, he stressed that the rest of the signatories offered suggestions and encouragement. We believe the statement is timely and important, expressing our longing and hope for racial reconciliation in the church and in society. And I have to tell you, again, speaking personally, that I am more concerned or as concerned with reconciliation within the church as I am in the broader society and culture. If we don't lead, then I have very little, I have no hope, I'll just put it that way, for the broader culture. Again, we believe the statement is timely and important, expressing our longing and hope for racial reconciliation in the church and in society. Dockery, who also serves as chancellor for Trinity International University in Illinois, wrote in an email to the Christian Post, we trust the statement will be helpful in that regard in the days to come. Well, the new statement comes as several church bodies have issued statements on race in the United States in the last several weeks following the controversial deaths of uh, Floyd, Taylor, Arbery, and others. Additionally, several well-known Christian pastors and speakers have participated in demonstrations following the death of Floyd. Two Sundays ago, Texas megachurch pastor Matt Chandler issued harsh words for the church during his sermon. After the civil rights movement of the 1960s, he he argues that the church had largely refused to participate when it comes to speaking out against racial issues. Now, one of the things that has happened is the church, by and large, has refused to participate, which means that we have turned over. God help us. We have turned over what is our inheritance to dark ideologies. He's referring to those not in the light of the gospel. We don't just preach the gospel on sex trafficking. We don't just preach the gospel on the issue of life and abortion. No, you act, Chandler said. It's like this brain broke disjoint that just got us acting absurd and then critiquing this racial justice movement as being evil and dark when it comes when we have given up our inheritance. Well, Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer recently called on the the denunciation um, uh, to stop uh, opening its annual meetings with a gavel that carries the name of John Broadus, a 19th century Southern Baptist leader who was a slaveholder, and many other changes are being proposed as well. It's encouraging to me. It may be meaningless to you, but it represents progress and the church stepping up uh, as the leader in the justice movement um, as opposed to being a follower 
or being um, focusing its attention elsewhere. Anyway, we're out of time. We'll perhaps revisit this another time. I want to thank James uh, Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Please stay on your knees and pray, not just for the nation, but for the church and the role that we are called to play in leading this culture toward Jesus. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.